0: This morning, I will be reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where, there is, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, Advent is the time that we remember that we were in sin and error pining because of the work of the first Adam, and Advent is the time when we celebrate the coming and the work of the second. So we thought it fitting to continue in Romans where it takes a view of those two men and shows us the the greatness of the work of Jesus. Paul here at the end of chapter 5 in the book of Romans, gives us a mountain view of humanity. He climbs up, as it were, and looks down 10,000 feet up at all of human history and all of humanity. And sometimes getting up higher in elevation can bring some clarity to what's going on on the ground. And I think that's what Paul aims to do with this passage, that as he climbs up and he looks at humanity... Uh, He he gives us a clearer view of all that he's been saying, of justification by faith, of this hope and the grace in which we stand, of this peace with God, this reconciliation. He gives us some clarity from this mountaintop view of humanity. And he does it with this really big claim that all of humanity can be defined in a sense, ordered in a sense, organized in a sense, under two names, under two men. The order of humanity... The organization of humanity is under two. There are two representative heads. They are two, uh, they are representing two different kinds of humanities. One is an old humanity, one is a new humanity. In one, there is the problem of humanity, and one, there is the solution of humanity. And you know who I'm speaking of, likely. We are speaking of Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the firstborn of the new creation. Paul looks at the humanity through this mountain view looks down and he looks at a couple different things he looks at the fall of humanity and he looks at the free gift and he marvels at what has come through Jesus Christ through Adam the first Adam comes much but through the second Adam comes this phrase that he says all the time in this chapter much more Paul's mountaintop view begins in Eden with Adam if you look in verse 12 he says therefore Just as sin came into the world through one man. He's going all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and the creation of God's world. God. This good creator creates this good creation, like he creates everything, and you remember how it's summed up at the very end of Genesis chapter 1? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, he looks at all that he has made, including man, male and female, created in the image of God. He looks at everything that he has made, and he makes this proclamation over it. He declares it. It is very good. He doesn't look at everything, including Adam and Eve, and say, well, I guess that'll do. Like, I guess they pass inspection. He looks at it and he says, very good. So there's nothing structurally wrong in the world or including humanity. There's nothing structurally wrong about Adam and Eve. The essence of humanity has no problems, no issues whatsoever after God's creation of them. And that's how the work of God always is. It is always very good, all the way down to its core. And so he looks at everything and it's, Really good, including Adam and Eve. There's no sin, there's no disobedience, there's no death. It's God's very good world with God's very good creatures living in it. And if we could only have ended the story there, it would have been good. But that's not where the story ended. A snake slid into the garden. tempts Adam and Eve. And we move from this very good creation to what we see in verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Led to this entrance of sin into the world and the entrance of sin brought in the entrance of death. Truly, we're going to read this in Romans 6 later on, but the wage of sin is death. And and when sin came, so did death. It came along with it. God warned them of this. But still, once they disobeyed him and rejected his word and, and lived and went their own way, death came in along with sin. And at that point, when death entered in upon that sin, they were not only headed to physical death, although that was true as well. But they experienced spiritual death at that time. They experienced separation and alienation from God. And in their separation, their spiritual death from God, what do they do when God comes to walk in the garden after they've sinned? They hide. They're ashamed. And God exiles them from this good garden that He'd created to walk with them in. Because now sin has entered and death has entered. And with the entrance of sin and death into the world, the fall was complete, and its work was pervasive. He says that it spread to all men, because all sinned. In verse 12, Paul accounts for the universal spread of sin. The, the spread of sin that we heard of in chapter 1, verse 18, that, that the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and then he lists out so many sins of men. Or in chapter 2, when he says, you who think that you don't do those things, you judge those who do those things, well, you're right in with him in terms of condemnation, you also are sin. Or if you think you've, you've missed out on chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, and you need to go to chapter 3, then I'm going to make sure you know that there's no one righteous, not even one, none. That kind of sin that spread to all, he accounts for the universal spread of sin and the universal spread of death, which we know is no respecter of persons. From the the highest on earth, the most exalted, they die. To the lowest, they die. We have death is pervasive and universal. All people without exception, sin and all people without exception, die. And the reason for that is explained by Adam. The situation, the condition after Adam is a situation. It's a condition, the human condition is one of sin and death. And every single person enters into that situation of sin and death. They enter into the situation, the condition as Adam left it. All then inherit sin. It is part of our nature now. All then were moving and headed towards death because of Adam's sin. That's the situation that we're in. Death spreads to all on account of Adam's sin. Adam's sin also creates the condition, not only do we inherit a sinful nature, but now we're disposed not to love and serve God, but to go our own way, to move away from God. And so Adam's sin caused sin and death to enter into the world, and on account of Adam's sin, we have this condition that leads to universal sin, where we all sin. At the end, when he says, because all sinned, at verse 12, I think he's speaking, all sinned. In a sense, we were represented by Adam and we sinned in that way. But also, that all sinned is a personal sin. It's the same words he used in chapter 3, All have sinned. That's personal sin. You walking in disobedience and rejection of the one true living God. It's personal sin that results from Adam's sin. And so I like what one author has helped us in this translation of verse 12. I think it helps bring a little bit more clarity to this verse when he says this. This is his translation. Therefore, just as through one man sin came to the world and death through sin, no, no difference really there. And he says and clarifies. So in this way, death spread to all men on account of which condition all sinned. So I think what Paul is doing in verse 12 is asserting a few different things, that all sin and die because of Adam's sin, and all sin and die because all sin. It's both of those things. People sin and die because of Adam's sin, and people sin and die because of their own sin, that what Paul has so clearly been speaking of and revealed in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and in chapter 3. People sin and die because of their own sin and because of Adam's sin, the condition, the situation that they inherited from what Adam did in the garden. And not only do we know this universal condition experientially, you, you, you know this in life. You, you're like you're, people you're around. They're not perfect. And, and you've experienced death. If you've lived any life, you've experienced death of people around you. There's sin and death everywhere. And if you just, I mean, what, we have access to the world. Like, look around the world. Guess what's also there? Sin and death. Not perfect people and people that are living forever. Sin and death is there. So we experience it. We we know that this is the universal condition experientially. We know it externally, but we also know it personally and internally. That everything from the dry skin on our bodies to our fading and falling hair tells us that we're moving toward death. Our conscience that the Lord put in us as part of our humanity that we saw in chapter 1 that is bearing witness to the truth. It is bearing witness to the fact that we are sinners before a holy God. Now we can suppress that truth for sure. But both our dry skin and our conscience bear witness that we are sinners before God. And that we're nearing our death. And the Bible has a, a really good explanation for that human problem. That is universal. I, I don't think that it's explained satisfactorily anywhere else. But the Bible is this trustworthy guide of the human problem, and and so keep with it because it's going to be a trustworthy guide to think of the human solution. Paul's going to clarify verse 12 with verse 13, saying, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. The the truth that all sinned is evident before the law, the, the time when sin is not counted. So he's looking at the time between Adam and Moses, and he says that all sinned in there, and it's evident in that time, even though he says sin is not counted. He doesn't mean that sin didn't exist during that time without the law. I mean, clearly it existed. Cain, right? the flood. We, we could look further. He doesn't mean that sin isn't counted in that it wasn't punished, it wasn't judged. Again, look at Cain. He's marked by God. Look at the flood where God knows that the intentions of the heart are always evil all the time, and he brings judgment upon the world in this flood. I mean, we could look at Babel. I mean, there's all these places where not only there's rampant sin, but it also is counted in the sense it is punished by God. So he's not saying it in that way. And of course, we already have what Paul has said in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, for all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. So there's death, even eternal death. I think the perishing of 2.12 is eternal death without the law. They've sinned apart from the law. They're going to perish apart from the law. And so what does he mean by counted? Counted as in a direct breaking of specific commands from God. Because those commands, those specific things from God, haven't been codified yet. They haven't been written down and official yet in a body of law. So law wasn't present to reveal direct acts of disobedience to God at that time. And so I, I think that's, in that sense, they're not counted. But even without that law clearly defining sin, actually putting a sharper edge on sin because now it is pointed out as something that is directly disobeying commands that are codified by God, even apart from that law sharpening sin, here's what we know, that sin was very present. It was everywhere. And it's proved in what was going on at the time. You look in verse 14, he says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Moses. It didn't, it didn't take a break because there was no law yet. Right? Like it was raining. Look at that word reigned. It held everybody under its dominion. That's the condition after Adam. All are under the dominion of death. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Who was a type of the one who was to come. Even without the law... Sin was present and proved in death. There's no law doing what he says in chapter 4, verse 15, where he says that the law brings wrath, pointing out transgression. There's no law doing that, but even without that, death holds dominion. Even without the law telling them of their direct transgression, death reigns because sin had spread to all men, and death through sin. But even when the law wasn't present, sin was reigning, death, held dominion. And so I think in that sense, sin was still counted. But the sin of those from Adam to Moses was not counted in the same way, he says. Look again in verse 14. Even over those from Adam to Moses, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. In both Adam and Adam to Moses, those are the things that he's comparing here, there's sin and that sin leads to death. That's clear in the scripture. Both of those are clear. And you think, again, flood. There's sin, and that sin leads to death. It's counted in that sense. But Adam's sin counted differently. In one way, Adam did break a direct command. There was a law. God said, don't eat the fruit from this tree. There's a direct law written. It wasn't written down at that time, but he heard it from God. So he broke a direct command from God in a way that was different than others. But not only did he break a command. He did so as the representative head of all humanity. Like, in Adam, is, is in a sense all of us. He is representing humanity in the garden. He is this playing, he says he's a type, a typological role. No one from Adam to Moses' sin was counted in the same way as Adam's because no one was that representative head of humanity like Adam was. And his sin, his fall, was decisive then for all humanity. And so Adam comes in and he falls, he sins, and humanity then is left with the effects of that sin. Humanity is in a mess after Adam's typological representative fall. Now all mankind, all humans are now under sin and death. The fall ushers in the reign of sin and death. But Adam was only a type. And Paul wants to talk about the fall, but he also wants to talk about, hey, he's a type of something, so let's also talk about the free gift. And that's what he gets to in verse 15. Moving from the fall in verses 12 through 14 to the free gift. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So because of the fall, all are born in sin, and that sin is leading to death. But that doesn't leave Paul depressed. That's a pretty set, like thanks for that on Advent Sundays where we're talking about how Adam screwed everything up and now we're all under the reign of sin and death, like Merry Christmas, right? Like that's a terrible message, but Paul's not down about it. He's not depressed here. He wants to talk about the human situation like we're all in Adam and that's bad news. But he also is not depressed by it because the human situation is really bad. But the trespasses of that one man makes Paul marvel all the more at the thought of this free gift that he talks about here. The free gift of that one man, he says, Jesus Christ. He uses words, much more. He's moving from the lesser thing to the greater thing, from the first Adam to the second Adam, from Adam to Jesus. And he says, much more. And he's right in saying, much more. It's certainly easier to make a mess of things than it is to clean up. Kids, am I right? Like, you've been told that by your parents. Like, it's easier to make a mess than to clean it up. Legos come out really easily. They don't get put up as well. Like, it's a little bit harder. They go all over the place. Alright, so it's easier to make a mess than to clean it up. Uh, for Sage's first birthday, was just a, a month or so ago, and, and for her birthday, we made her birthday cake, right? So actually, Catherine and Anna both worked on this, and, and the hours of preparation, I don't know, I didn't calculate the time, but it's like, it takes time, you get the ingredients, you put them together, like you mix it all up, and then you decorate it, so hours of time to, to make it and, and decorate it, and, and seconds to destroy it, Right? It takes no time at all for a kid to just smash their hand into it and and it's over. And not only that, but then afterwards, like it's seconds to to destroy, but it's effort to clean this thing up, not only from the kid themselves, but also the floor, their hair, like the chair, whatever. It's going everywhere. There's effort to clean this up. And Adam, he comes in and he makes a mess out of something really very good, something beautiful and good that God created. And Jesus comes in, the second Adam comes in, only after the mess has been made by the first Adam. It's it's onto that messy canvas of of sin and death and condemnation that the beautiful work of justification from Jesus is done. It's not as if Jesus comes in to make the cake from scratch. Like, Adam messed it up, and so we're going to get back in the kitchen, and we're going to get the ingredients from scratch again, and we've got the sanitary place to make this thing all the way back to where it was again, and it's going to be beautiful. That's not what happens. He doesn't start from scratch with perfect conditions like Adam had. Jesus comes in with the cake. It's already all over the floor. It's already all over everybody. The mess has already been made, and he's going to take that mess and piece it back together. Like He didn't start where Adam started. When Jesus comes into the world, he was born into this world that's full of disease, full of sickness, full of demon possession, full of death, It's everywhere around him. It moves him greatly. That's the world that he steps into when he takes on flesh. It is not Eden anymore. It is very east of Eden. He starts in a manger. He starts his ministry in the wilderness, tempted by Satan who is running wild in the world apparently and able to come to him and give him temptations. He starts with Adam's results. He starts under death's reign. And it's after sin and death have spread to all men that Jesus comes. And it's that condemnation that everyone is under who now get the, to receive from Jesus, because of his work, justification. Right? That's much more. That's why Paul is using that kind of language. Language, through Adam comes sin. Through Jesus comes the free gift. On account of Adam, death reigns. On account of Jesus, grace abounds grace again like we need to not be bored by that term and be like well it's unmerited favor I heard that in Sunday school when I was a kid and I wrote it down and I never forgot that definition it's a good definition but grace is more than that in this sense right grace is not just unmerited favor it's power it is power at work in powerlessness that's what's going on here power that reverses the consequences of Adam's fall that's the grace that's abounding in this passage it's Power that reverses the the sin that Adam brought into this world and death through sin. And so Paul can say, verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The reign of death is everywhere and it is everywhere undeniable everyone is underneath it that came he says again just asserts it that was because of adam adam's trespass he has no problem just asserting that as the reality there's but there's another rain much more kind of rain the rain of death that was inaugurated through adam's sin and now there's another rain the rain of life that comes in jesus and notice what he does with this rain How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He gives this reign over to those who receive this grace. This reign of life is a receiving of the abundant grace that he's talking about. It's a receiving of this righteousness right here and right now so that they might walk, as he's going to say in chapter 6, walk in newness of life. They're, they're reigning in life. Now they have some of that reign as they walk in newness of life and they have a, an eternal destination, right? The, the destination is clear. You're going to reign in life. Right? It's very much where you're, you have a hope in the glory of God. You're going in a direction. It's like what 5.10 says. Right, we're reconciled. Right now, we're reconciled to God. We're reigning in that sense, and we will be saved by him, by his life. In other words, we're entering into this place in Jesus where we move from life unto life. We have reign now and reign final and fully later. It's only partial now. It will be final and full later. That's the reign of life. Much more is what Paul says. Much more, and it's abundance. It's abundant. And what Paul is doing and using those words and showing us is that it, he's marveling at it. How much more? Well, this is a free gift, this abundant grace. He's marveling, knowing of sin and death in Adam, and knowing then in light of that of grace and life in Jesus will make one do that. Will make one think like, how much more if that is what the situation was, and Jesus came to this? How much more? Paul traveled all over the place. He, he, he'd gone so many places and everywhere he'd gone he'd encountered all fallen in Adam. He'd seen it all. People trying to stone him and run him out of town. People embracing him. People trying to worship him. Like he'd seen it everywhere from all sorts of different places of the world and everywhere he saw every person fallen in Adam. But he knew that that's where grace goes to work. In those fallen places. He'd seen This much more, this abundant grace on the ground in Corinth with a a society and a culture of people that had rejected God and gone their own way. And he'd seen it disrupt that and carve out of that culture of people for God's own possession. He'd gone to Ephesus where they're worshiping idols and the consequences of Adam's sin are spreading to everyone around that place. And he'd see grace interrupt that and the consequences of Adam's sin give way to the justification and righteousness that he spoke of in Jesus. And this 10,000 foot view of of humanity for Paul isn't some just sort of theological exercise. It's it's a marveling. It's how he thinks through, like how he's going about life. It shouldn't just be a theological exercise to say, like, oh, what's the technical term about us being in Adam and us being in Christ? Like, it should be some technological, like, we need to be technical about it, clear about it, precise about it, but we also need to marvel at it like how much more he says there's abounding things there's free gifts being given that is a marveling kind of thing in verse 6 he he talked about verses 6 through 10 that we're weak we're ungodly we're sinners and then we're enemies with God and we're reconciled we're saved in verse 12 he talks about how there's sin and there's death and there's a reign of these there's condemnation and then he moves from that to saying there's free grace that we can receive, that we can be justified, that we can receive righteousness. That is stuff that makes us marvel. And we've all seen and received from the first Adam. like We're under the first Adam. Our bodies bear witness to it. Our sin and our conscience bear witness to it. There's universal sin. There's universal condemnation. There's universal death. And it marks everything. And it marks us. And in and, and some ways, as we read through these verses, you might hear these things as Paul just simply asserts a couple different times that this is the way it is because of Adam and you might think like why am I getting blamed for him? Seems a little unfair of God to have thrown his sin, his condemnation his guilt, death that he brought into this world on me. It certainly smacks against our very individualistic sensibilities where we all stand on our own merits right? And now we're receiving and inheriting the merits of another that we're bad and don't like. So we think, how could God hold us as condemned because of the work of Adam? We entered into this place under corruption with an, an inherited sinful nature and we're going to be held accountable for that? What chance do we have? And you're not, you know, like, banned from having any of those questions? I would say that you need to take those questions to the Lord. He's not scared of them. Nor, does he, nor is he ignorant that you have them. He knows what's going on. I say take them to him. But as you do, why don't we remember who this God is? See, the God who holds us all condemned in Adam also came in Jesus. The God who, who says that we are guilty because of Adam's sin also died so that sinners could be set free. He also offers not just grace, abundant grace, righteousness, justification. And so, yeah, we can take all those questions. God, how is that fair? But let's also remember that this God came and died so that we would be set free from the work of that Adam. He didn't send somebody else. He himself came. So there's much more with this God that you're questioning. There's abounding and abundance with this God through Jesus Christ. Have you seen the the beautiful work that he's done? Have you marveled at Jesus, the one who came into this broken place after the effects of the fall have done their deadly work in history? Have you seen the powerful work of justification written on the messy canvas of condemnation? If you have, that's God. That's what he does. It's a much more kind of work. It's a free gift kind of work. It's an abundant kind of work. And it is available to all who are affected by Adam's sin. He hasn't withheld it. He's pushed it out there. That's why we talk about a gospel. There's a proclamation going out. It's good news going out. It's that Jesus himself, God himself, came to rescue sinners. And it's available. He wants people to know. Everyone that's affected by Adam's sin, there's a way out from under that sin and death through Jesus but also notice what he says here in verse 17, that it's those who receive, it's received. We go through verse 15 through 17, there, there's no sense of universalism that, that, okay, we're fallen in Adam, but we're all eventually going to be saved in Christ anyway. He's already done the work and, and so we're all saved, what's the big deal? There's not universalism here. There is universal sin. But salvation is only through Jesus, and it's only for those who receive His grace, verse 17. That reception of His grace, that reception in verse 17, is a reception that implies that I know that I'm condemned in Adam, that I'm guilty in Adam, that I'm under sin in Adam, that I'm under death in Adam, and that all have sinned, that I am under sin and death because I have contributed and sinned. It's an implied knowing that I need grace, so that now you're open to receive that grace. So how do we receive grace? Well, we're not going to cut off chapter 5 from the rest of of Romans, right? How do we receive from chapters 1 through 4? He's clearly told us how we can get right standing with God. It's not earned. It's not worked. It's not gained. You don't work your way into it. You only receive it as a free gift or you don't receive it at all. Well, how do you receive a free gift? Again, not different from chapters one through four, four, not apart from Jesus, but by faith in Jesus. Faith this self-renouncing. I'm condemned. I deserve God's wrath, but I'm looking away from myself to another, to Jesus. That kind of faith, that's the faith that receives this abundant grace that Paul talks of in verse 17. There's no universalism. There's only you're saved by faith in Jesus or you're under the old Adam. And those who receive this abundant grace and this free righteousness, what does he say? They reign in life through Jesus. Do you remember the original goal for Adam? Hold dominion over the earth. It, like He was to reign and rule in, in a sense in the image of God, in, in God's stead. Like He was to be like God under his good reign, under his good rule. He was to hold dominion. And he fell. And then comes the second Adam. And then through him, this reign of life comes. The original goal is now found in Jesus and shared for those who trust in him. And so the comparison and contrast between Adam and Jesus, the second Adam, is rich. And Paul, I think, summarizes it in verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the, the language can be a bit confusing, right? We hear all in one verse and then we're in many in the next one. And all in many must not be mixed up again to form some sort of universalism. That we're all condemned in Adam so we all must be saved in Jesus and that's the end. If it were, then Paul doesn't need to write to the Romans. Forget about that. Just let them do whatever they want. Because if they're all condemned and they're all saved, there's no need to get this gospel out. But Paul writes very clearly, right? I'm writing to you concerning the gospel of the Son. This is the gospel of God concerning the Son, the one who came and lived and died. So there's no sense of universalism. These verses in 18 and 19 and those words all and many, they are parallel, but they're not identical. So the, the clear context of Romans helps keep one from confusing the all and the many. All are condemned. That's clear in the context of Romans everywhere, isn't it? There's universal language of sin. It pervades Romans. Chapter 1, the, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 2, you think that you're more holy than them? Well, actually, you're condemned for judging. Like chapter 3, you think you're righteous? There's no one righteous, not even one. I've been saying it since the Psalms, right? It's been all over the place. That's what Paul gets at. And so that all and universal language that we've seen throughout Romans doesn't then shift with the word many in, in verse 19 to say, actually... Not everybody, just a lot of them. No, it's all. Right? Again, they're, they're parallel, they're not identical. But the righteous side flips the, the switch a little bit, right? Are all righteous in the book of Romans? Has the context given us that? No, clearly no. Like he's been telling them, pointing out their unrighteousness so that they might know of saving righteousness. And so are all righteous in Romans? No. Who are righteous in Romans? Who are the righteous? Who receive right standing with God? It's those who have faith in Jesus only those who have faith in Jesus are righteous and so that's how he's using the all and many but I love how he says many not few not few many many those justified that is the saddest offer to all who receive grace who are receiving by faith the righteousness of Christ they are justified and they are justified these are part of the many who are justified and they are only justified on account of the righteousness that comes from Jesus. That's verses 18 and 19. Those made righteous are only made righteous by Jesus' obedience. By one act, he says, of righteousness. And you've got to think, all right, what one act? What obedience? Well, Paul's been speaking, verses 6 through 10, a lot about how Jesus died for while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 9, we're justified by his blood. Speaking of death, we're reconciled, verse 10, by the death of his son. And so here's this act of obedience, this one act of righteousness, the death of his son. And, and, and that's probably what Paul has in view here. He even says in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, he even humbled himself to obedience to the point of death, Philippians 2 even death on a cross. And so he looks at this cross as this one act of righteousness, this act of ultimate peak climactic obedience to God. And this climax of Jesus' obedience is, is what he has in view here, but, but we also know that he's not just excluding any other acts of obedience and righteousness from Jesus. Actually, we know that this one climactic act of righteousness and obedience from Jesus on the cross only matters if he's been obedient the whole time. He can't be a rebellious son and all of a sudden jump on the cross and be a sacrificial lamb, perfect spotless lamb for, for many no, he, he can't do that. He's obedient, he's acting in righteousness, and then it, it reaches its climax at the cross where he's this pure and spotless lamb slain for the sins of the world. And this righteousness, this act of obedience covers the unrighteousness of Adam. Jesus, again, succeeds where Adam fails. And again, he doesn't just succeed where Adam's Adam fails as if he started over. Jesus succeeds in the midst of Adam's mess. He starts with Adam's mess and he sets it right from that place. And it's that righteousness, it's that obedience that that comes from Jesus that brings justification and righteousness to sinners. And Paul's going to sharpen that a bit. In verse 20, he says, Well, now the law, it, it came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The, the law came to increase the trespass. So he, he's sharpening that, again, it's only through Jesus, only through his obedience, only through his righteousness that we can have righteousness ourselves. And, and for the Jews, that point needs to be sharpened a bit, he thinks. And so he says, the law came in to increase the trespass. But you can't solve the problem of Adam's sin and the reign of sin and death. You can't solve condemnation through the law can't happen. He says your status in life, it is not determined in the law. Your status is determined in Adam or in the second Adam. It's not the law that determines that. The law, he says, actually increases trespasses in the sense that it's exposing deeds that are rebellious and not just rebellious, rebellious now against God's written out specified commands. But the greater awareness of the sickness and the problem should lead to this greater appreciation and realization of the greatness of the cure. Yes, yeah, sin is increased, like the law comes in and increases the trespasses and points out more of it, shows the weight of it. But where sin increased, he says in verse 20, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We, we get a look back from this mountain, we see the effects of sin, and we can look in our own lives, and, and people around us, and, and our own sin, and we say, like, the effects of sin are, are terrible. It's like truly sin and death reign. And we don't want to minimize its effects. It has an actual reign. Paul says it reigns in death. Its depths, the depths of sin that are out there and the depths of sin that are in here are worse than we think. You know when you you face death, the atrocity of it, the seeming finality of it, like you're faced with that. But deeper still is the reign of grace through Jesus. Sin's reign leads to death. Grace's reign leads to eternal life, he says. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so Paul ends chapter 5 where he began chapter 5. Therefore we have peace with God. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 5 verse 21 he says, Sin reigned in death, but grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through whom? Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no doubt what Paul is intending to put before us in chapter 5. There's no doubt to his focus, there's no doubt to the point that he is trying to get across that the blessings of peace, the blessings of justification, the blessing of righteousness, the blessing of eternal life, they only flow through one person, and that is through Jesus Christ. It's so needed that it flow through him because of what we saw from Adam and what flowed through him. Through Adam comes sin and death and condemnation for all. On account of his sin, all are born in sin, nearing their death. He leaves us all and all of the world in the condition that we can't get out from under and that we add to with our own sin. And both Adam's sin and our own sin condemn us before God. We are truly condemned in every sense in Adam. But through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is another story. There's a tiny word in the midst of this passage that gives such big hope. It's a word found in verse 14. It's the word type. Adam was a type. Paul didn't climb up the mountain and look back to the beginning of history and find Adam as a helpful illustration. Paul got up to the mountain of human history and he looked back and he saw Adam was one that had already prefigured another when he started that this Adam was one who was already in his person, pointing the way to another as he began. And so as Adam Adam's work affects relationship to God and condemns all under it, so this second Adam does amazing work too. That all who are in him, their relationship with God then is transformed and reversed. So that now once we had enmity with God, now we are reconciled to God. Under one we had condemnation, now we have justification. On one we are living in all sorts of unrighteousness and in the other we have righteousness. Adam was just a type. In one is condemnation, in the other is Righteousness. But everyone falls under one of those two atoms. Which Adam atom defines you? Which Adam's work are you under? If you're under the one atom, the first Adam, we, we say, like, you need to see your need for righteousness and receive the abundant grace that's offered in Jesus. If you've received the abundant grace that's in Christ Jesus, you need to know that you're under his work. You need to remember that you're under his work. One of the ways that we do that together is that we take the Lord's Supper and remember his work. And it's only on the basis of his work that we come to any table with God, that we have reconciliation with God. And so we come by faith saying, it's not my work, it's his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out, that I have any sort of reconciliation, justification, righteousness with God. If that's you, we invite you to take this meal. We, we take this meal and we remember that he saved us and that we will be saved. That we're in the reign of life.